You need the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if Jesus has not been raised from the grave on the third day, then you will not be raised from the grave and your life is meaningless. If life ends with annihilation in the grave, as Dr. Sproul put it, then the ultimate reality is the grave. Dr. Sproul continues, If there is no resurrection, then we can have no pretensions to human significance. He's right. If the grave is the end, then it is the ultimate reality. You need Jesus' resurrection from the dead on the third day. And you need not just a myth or a metaphorical resurrection from the dead. There's no hope in a myth or a metaphor. No, you need an actual bodily resurrection. And not just any bodily resurrection, but a resurrection where the body is transformed never to be subject to disease, decay, or death again. After all, what good is a resurrected body that is simply subject to the miseries of this life again and can die again? That's why you need Jesus' resurrection. No other resurrection will do. In Jesus' resurrection, He secured the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and justification. The justification of His people on principles of righteousness and a glorified body. You need Jesus' resurrection. For if Jesus has not been raised, then the reason that you're here today to hear the preaching of God's Word is pointless. And you ought to be pitied for being involved in a sham, or at least for wasting your time. You need Jesus' resurrection. So the question is, do you have Jesus' resurrection? Have you confessed Jesus' resurrection as a fact of history, the heartbeat of your faith, and the hope of your future? That's what Christians do when we use the words of the Apostles' Creed to proclaim, on the third day He rose again from the dead. You should be able to find the words of the Apostles' Creed there on an insert in your bulletin. When, when we confess those words, when we take them up as a congregation and confess our faith using those words, we claim our need for Jesus' resurrection. We claim our stake in Jesus' resurrection. And we claim our victory over death through Jesus' resurrection. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. As we continue our occasional doctrinal series through short phrases in the Apostles' Creed. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles and to open them to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 906. The Apostles' Creed, it's been used by Christians for nearly 1,800 years uh, as a, a succinct summary of our faith. And to be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to summarize the teaching of Jesus' apostles. The, the goal was to put into succinct words, a succinct summation of the apostles' teaching concerning the Christian faith. And so that's what we have in the creed. And today, as we look at the words, on the third day, he rose again from the dead, what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of that line in the creed. In other words, I'm not preaching the apostles' creed. I'm preaching the Bible that the apostles' creed seeks to summarize. That's why we're going to look at John 20 and other important passages in our study together this morning, which teach us about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and its implications. So we're going to unpack the teaching of the Bible and this line of the creed by asking three questions. We're going to ask and answer these three questions. Number one, what happened 
in Jesus' resurrection? What happened in Jesus' resurrection? Number two, what was heralded in Jesus' resurrection? What was heralded, announced in Jesus' resurrection? And number three, what happiness is secured in Jesus' resurrection? What happiness is secured in Jesus' resurrection? Those three points or questions are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first question. What happened in Jesus' resurrection? What, what happened? Well, the answer that John's gospel gives us that we're going to look at here shortly is simple. God emptied the tomb. That's what happened in Jesus' resurrection. Because of the power of the triune God at work, Jesus left the tomb, body and soul, as he was raised from the dead and, and given a glorified body. We're going to see this in three ways. Jesus was absent from the tomb. He appeared to his disciples and he had an actual body. So as, as we turn to John 20 and, and look at this account, we, we need to remember something of what's happened so far. If you were to read chapters 18 and 19, you would see that Jesus... Uh, was tried under Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. And though no one could find any fault in him, he was convicted and crucified and condemned. And his dead body was laid in a garden tomb. And one would think that we've reached the end of what John had to say about Jesus. The king of the Jews has died. A massive stone has been rolled in front of his tomb so that, as one children's author put it, no one could get in or out. And when Jesus' body is enshrouded in the darkness of that stone-sealed tomb, what, what more could be said about the story of Jesus? Well, because John has been telling us all throughout his gospel that death would not be the end. We know that this is not the end of Jesus. So, for example, in John chapter 1, uh, John said that Jesus has come to be the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. So we know that he's going to die. But then in John chapter 2, Jesus himself announces, you destroy this temple, referring to his own body. He said, I'll raise it up in three days. So we know that Jesus' death there in that tomb would not be the end. So, so as we begin to read John 20, we see not only that sunlight has broken into that dark tomb, but that Jesus has broken out. Follow along now as I read John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10 for now. John 20, verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You see there in verse 1, there's a, a time marker. The time marker of the first day of the week reminds us that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event involving a real historical person. The Christian faith is based upon the actions of our God in history. And no thoughtful historian would deny the existence of Jesus 
of Nazareth. There's just too much evidence to deny the fact that Jesus existed and lived in the first century. In fact, in the first and second centuries, outside of the Christian scriptures, there are Roman witnesses to Jesus' uh, existence. Uh, early Christians, um, it, so these witnesses, uh, they, they refer to Jesus and early Christians. They're witnesses like Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny the Younger and Celsus and Lucian uh, and, and Maribon uh, Serapion. And, and then there's the, the Jewish witness, Josephus. Josephus witnessed to Jesus' um, existence as well. So, so no thoughtful historian would deny the fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived and labored and that people followed him in the first century. He was a, a real person. But we, we also learn here that, that Jesus got up from the dead on the third day. Now, uh, many are, are troubled by this. The, the writer's scriptures are clear that Jesus was laid in the tomb Friday. He was there Saturday, and he was raised from the grave on Sunday. Uh, we, in our kind of modern sensibilities, uh, sometimes have trouble with that kind of chronology because we, we often think of, of days as in full 20-hour periods. Well, the, the ancient writers had, had no problem with this. They were, they were happy to refer to, to those days as three days. And so it's appropriate and good and right for us to say that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day. But what we're also seeing here is that the only proper explanation for the empty tomb is Jesus' resurrection. Some in history have, have wanted to, to speak of this idea that Jesus only swooned on the cross. That, that he, he, he didn't really die. That he, he merely just fainted. Or, or that his disciples took his body. But that last one, that his disciples took his body, is, is, is obviously contrary to what we're seeing here in John's eyewitness account. They, they have no idea where his body is gone. Mary herself is saying, that they, they took him. I, I don't know where he is. And Mary's going to say this more times. You don't put that on the lips of one of the first disciples and believers of Jesus unless it's the truth. John is concerned to give us an honest account. that They think that his body is gone. And, and, and Jesus' disciples, they obviously look a little lost, don't they? They don't understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. John is, is not really painting these disciples in a great light, but he's painting them in an honest light because he knows the truth. The truth will set people free. And so regardless of how the disciples look, John is committed to telling the real story of Jesus. And the swoon theory, well, just on that grave robber's theory, right, that the, that the disciples took the body and took it away, or that somebody took it away, right? Did you, did you notice how the the linen cloths are described there and the, the face cloth, it's, it's folded up. W would a grave robber really take time to unwrap the body of Jesus and then take the, the face cloth or the head cloth and, and fold it up and, and set it there? No, if you're going to overcome a Roman guard who's standing there and hope to escape any reinforcements that may be coming, you're going to be swift about such matter, not take such time to do such things. And the idea that Jesus merely swooned on the cross. He didn't really die. And then he recovered in the cool of the tomb. That's just a silly theory. Jesus was beaten. He was grotesquely beaten. A crown of thorns was crushed and placed upon his head. He was pierced with a spear in his side and blood and water flowed. He had nails driven through his hands and feet. Could Jesus, really having suffered all of that, could he really have 
recovered, so much so to remove a massive stone, and then to take on a, a Roman guard. No. There's, there's no way in which Jesus would have recovered from that. He really did rise from the dead. That's the only really possible and plausible explanation of what took place here. The resurrection of Jesus is still the most factually plausible explanation for the empty tomb. And that's because it really happened. And though Peter and John did not as of yet understand God's revelation to Scripture, that he must rise from the dead, as verse 9 says, they soon would. We're going to come back to the fulfillment of the Scriptures concerning Jesus' resurrection in time. But for now, we need to come to recognize that Jesus uh, was absent from the tomb and that he made an appearance, a, a physical appearance to his disciples. Take a look at John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him, uh, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say, I am sending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Now you should be noticing that part of what this passage announces to us is that what has happened in Jesus' resurrection is he has been raised body and soul from the grave. Jesus' resurrection is not a myth or a metaphor. It was a real, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. That's partly what this interaction underscores, right? Because John makes it clear that Mary, she, she failed to recognize Jesus. She's thinking of him as a gardener. And Jesus, he's not offended by this. But he turns and he asks Mary, whom are you seeking? Mary's seeking Jesus, the one who was laid in the tomb. Reminded of this again. And then Jesus reveals himself to her by calling her name Mary. And she turns with joy and says, Teacher, she, she recognizes the voice of the Good Shepherd, right? The sheep recognize the voice of the Good Shepherd and they, they come to Him. And she not only recognizes His voice, but what did she do? She clung to Him. And don't miss this. Mary, she makes physical contact with Jesus. She's not holding on to the ghost. She's holding on to the Savior and He feels her grasp. Mary, I've not yet ascended. Let go of me, Jesus is in effect saying. She's not holding on to a ghost. She's holding on to the one who was raised, body and soul. What, what happened in Jesus' resurrection? He was raised, body and soul. And this is underscored again in verses 19 to 23 
underscores the, the same reality when Jesus appears to his disciples. Read those verses. Read John chapter 19, sorry, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of the first day, uh, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they said, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If, with you, if you withhold the forgiveness of, from anyone, it is withheld. So, as of now, in John's account, Jesus had yet to appear to the disciples as a, a whole. But not much time passed before he did. While Jesus appeared to Mary earlier that morning on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared to his disciples as a, as a group there on the evening of that day. And Jesus' appearance in that locked room was no doubt a miracle. Unless we think that Jesus now has an immaterial body, John stresses that Jesus stood among them. He stood among them, right? He, he showed them his hands and his side, as verse 20 says, and that he breathed on them, verse 22. The resurrected body that Jesus is showing his disciples is the same physical body that he was crucified in. And he's alive. He's living. And he's breathing. But Jesus doesn't just have a, a physical human body. He has a glorified and glorious body, as Paul calls it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Though Jesus passing into rooms with locked doors probably has more to do with his identity as, as divine, as God in the flesh. Nevertheless, he has a, a different body than anyone else in that room. His resurrection body is a body that's neither corruptible nor mortal. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 50, uh, 15, verses 50 to 53, it was a body that was changed. It's a body that has been raised imperishable, incorruptible, and immortal. It's a body which will never be subject to disease, decay, or death again, as Revelation 21.4 teaches us. This is what has happened in Jesus' resurrection. He's, he's a body that's been changed and transformed. And in the final scene of John 20, we see one disciple come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus. Take a look there at verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see what John tells us there in verse 24? It tells us that, John, uh, that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus appeared 
the last time. But now, a week later, we have this reality uh, where Jesus is appearing to Thomas. And, and Thomas, he, he tells the disciples that he wants to see Jesus for himself. He, he doesn't just want to see Jesus. He, he wants to place his, his hand upon Jesus, finger into the mark of the nails, and place it, his hand into Jesus' side. Thomas wants proof. And who can blame him? Jesus has died. He, he wants to see and, and believe for himself. And well, just as he had done eight days before Jesus appears in, in that room, in that locked room. And what does he do? He gives Thomas proof, doesn't he? He walks right up to Thomas and he invites him to place his finger on his hands and put his hand onto his side. And, and Thomas, he's not only admonished, but he's encouraged to believe. Jesus said to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. With this, Thomas believes. And do you see what he proclaims? He believes that Jesus got up from the dead. And in verse 28, he proclaims that Jesus is his Lord and his God. Consider how personal this confession is, right? Twice he repeats that word, my, my Lord and my God. And this reveals how we should each personally recognize Jesus as, as our Lord, the good and gracious ruler of our lives. And we should recognize Him as our God, the, the one whom we worship, and the one whom we're called to love and serve and obey and trust. Yes, Thomas shows us the way. And if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's ever a text of the Bible that speaks to you, about how you should recognize and respond to Jesus, it's, it's this one. Thomas saw the Lord Jesus and believed. But blessed are you if you've not seen Jesus and believed. He really got up from the dead. Serve and trust Him. Believe that He died bearing the punishment for your sins and believe that He was raised from the grave so that you might be forgiven of them. Follow in Thomas' way and believe the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord the one who rules your life and your God, the one you worship and serve. If, if you were to, if we were to keep making our way through John's gospel, if you were to look over to chapter 21, verse 4, you would see that, that Jesus ate with his disciples. That's what living people with real bodies do. You're all going to want to eat at some point today. That's because you have a real human body. And Jesus, he, he eats with his disciples. And John tells us that's the third time that he appeared so Time after time after time, Jesus is making himself known physically and visibly right there to his disciples. And in fact, if you were to go through John's gospel and into the book of Acts, the book, the book we're studying ordinarily on Sundays, if you were to look at Acts chapter 1 verse 3, you would see that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus is clearly alive from the dead, absent from the tomb, and physically present with them. But Jesus didn't only reveal himself to his disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, we learn that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most well-attested to facts in history. It has a number of eyewitnesses to it. And, and what happened in the resurrection of Jesus was the power of the triune God at work in this sinful and fallen world. In bringing Jesus out of the tomb. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, as we're, we're told in Acts chapter 13, verse 30. But Jesus himself said that he would raise 
himself up. Didn't we, right? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus also said in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, that though he would lay his life down, that he would be the one who would take it up again. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is also involved in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we're told that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus up from the dead. What happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of the triune God went to work to overcome the chains of sin and death. Jesus left the tomb as he was raised body and soul from the dead and given a glorified body. And and if this is what happened in the event of the resurrection, then what does the resurrection mean? In, In other words, what news does the resurrection herald? What does this tell us? about life in this world and who Jesus is and who God is. This is the second question we want to try to answer together this morning. What is heralded or what was heralded in Jesus' resurrection? Let me give you a number of announcements. God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises in the Scripture is heralded in the resurrection of Jesus. God's justice in punishing sin and vindicating His Son's righteousness is heralded in the resurrection of Jesus. God's declaration that Jesus is His powerful Son, so powerful that He defeats death, is heralded in the resurrection of Jesus. God's vindication of Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life, is heralded in Jesus' resurrection. And God's revelation that the new creation has dawned has has been heralded in the resurrection. Let me try to explain each of those announcements that the resurrection gives and the scriptures teach us that they give. One of the first things that the resurrection heralds is God's faithfulness to His promises to fulfill the scriptures. Do you see that there in verse 9? If you look back up to verse 9 of John chapter 20, you'll see John's comment that the disciples did not understand that the scriptures, from the scriptures, that He must rise from the dead. God promised in the Old Testament scriptures that He would raise His Messiah up we read one of those earlier in, 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 in the service. Maybe this was one of the texts that John had in mind. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. When we read that earlier in the service, remember David said that Yahweh would not let His Holy One see corruption. That's certainly what Peter preached in Acts 2, as our brother Derek reminded us. But, but John, could, could he also be referring to Psalm 49, verse 15, where we read, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Or, or maybe... John had in mind Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, which says, After two days He will revive us, and on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Or, or maybe John had in mind the fulfillment of the book of Jonah. Maybe John had Jesus' words ringing in his ears from Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus' resurrection... It was a fulfillment of all of these scriptures and more. Jesus' resurrection announces and heralds that God is faithful to His promises and that He can be trusted to keep His word. But not only does Jesus' resurrection herald God's faithfulness and trustworthiness in the fulfillment of the scriptures, but it also heralds God's justice in punishing our sins in Jesus Christ and vindicating Jesus' perfect righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. But since Christ has been raised, we know that our sins have been punished and paid for and that God's justice has been satisfied. 
Because God is a holy and just God, He must punish sin. Because He's sinless and righteous, He he cannot look upon sin or allow it into His presence. That's why He had to thrust Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve? God made them. He set them in His garden. He gave them a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, if they did eat of it, if they disobeyed His command, they would surely die. And so death entered the world when they disobeyed. And because they were sinners in God's presence there in that garden, He he thrust them out. How were their sins, how are our sins to be paid? To be paid in the wages of, of death. Well, Jesus was paid the wages of sin, of His people's sin in His death on the cross. We have contravened God's justice. We have broken His good laws. And just like our father Adam, when he disobeyed, he was punished and under God's judgment and liable. We are too. We're guilty before God. We stand under His just condemnation and we need to be pardoned for our sins. We need to be forgiven of them. And we need someone to bear the wages of our sins because we cannot bear them and stand before God. And we would be lost forever. And Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes that. It accomplishes something else too. A vindication of Jesus' righteousness. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to move out of John's Gospel for just a minute. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That's on page 992 of the Bibles provided. When Jesus, when He went to the cross, He was condemned in the place of sinners. Though He was innocent, though He was free of sin, He suffered the judicial punishment of the guilty. He was paid the wages of our sin. And He took the punishment that sinners deserve. And He would remain dead. Until he was vindicated. That is, until he was justified and declared to be righteous in God's sight. That's what justification is. Justification is a a judicial declaration that a person is not only free of guilt, but that he is in fact righteous. And so, Jesus needed to be justified. He needed to be declared righteous, not because he had done anything wrong or because he was guilty, but because he had done everything right. And the world needed to be told. He did everything right. And so Jesus' resurrection of the dead heralded His innocence and His righteousness. That's what His resurrection was. It was an open acknowledgement, announcement, and acquittal of any and all guilt. It was a public vindication of His good name. And so that's why Paul writes, you see there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. This is a, resurre- a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And in your Bibles, you probably have a little footnote next to that word, uh, next to that, that sentence, next to the word vindicated. If you look down to the footnote, you'll probably see the word justify. In the original language, uh, that word in the Greek literally means to justify. So Jesus was holy, yet on the cross he was made sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. But as long as he remained under the power of death, The righteous character of his person and work remained in question. And that question needed to be removed. If Jesus was allowed to remain dead, then we would have every reason to believe that he was a sinner just like the rest of us and not the Savior. But the removal of death was the confirmation, vindication, justification, declaration that he was in fact free from sin. The resurrection of Jesus heralds the news That God was just to punish our sins in His Son. And that the just requirements of His law had been met. 
and that Jesus was perfectly righteous. And so he was raised up from the dead. And just as Jesus' resurrection from the dead heralds Jesus' perfect righteousness, so it heralds another truth too, that he is indeed the Son of God. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and take special note of what Paul says toward the end of of this reading, verse 4. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was, listen now, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? What was the means? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus, he was, he was always God's Son. He was and is the eternal Son of God. However, there is a, a movement that takes place in His resurrection. He is afresh, in, in a new way, declared or heralded to be God's Son by His resurrection from the dead. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, God's Son was declared to be literally powerful Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Death is no longer an undefeated foe. There is a more powerful power, the resurrected Son of God. That's who Jesus is. That's what's announced in His resurrection from the dead, that He has the power over life and death. And in that sense, Jesus' resurrection vindicates His claim that He is the resurrection and the life. And that whoever believes in Him, though they may die, yet shall they live. That's what Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25, when she was distraught over her brother's death. You remember that? Jesus comforted her, saying, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. But if Jesus didn't get up from the dead, then how can he claim to be the resurrection and the life? How can he claim to offer eternal life? As we've seen, Jesus did get up from the dead. And he heralds and vindicates that claim that he is the resurrection and the life. Only the one who conquers death can promise victory over death and offer eternal life. Perhaps my my most favorite verse in in reading through the scriptures this week and thinking about Jesus' resurrection is this one. Romans 14, 9. For to this end, what was the goal? For to this end, Christ died and lived again. To this end, what was the goal? Christ died and lived again that, here's the purpose clause, he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Jesus, he rules and reigns over life and death because he died and he lives again. It's what Jesus explicitly says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 when he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is in control of life and death. And he's good and gracious, and we can trust him. Jesus' resurrection, it also heralds the claim that he, that the new creation, the dawn of the new creation has begun. In Jesus' resurrection, the indestructible life of the age that is to come has entered into this present evil age. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the harvest of resurrections that is soon to take place. And that's where we're going to head in just a minute. And this leads us, of course, to consider the happiness that Jesus has secured in his resurrection. He's, he's won something. He's secured something for his people. So let's turn and think now 
about our third question together. What was the happiness that Jesus secured in his resurrection? How does his resurrection connect with us? Well, the happiness of the resurrection that Jesus secured is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Those are big words we're going to unpack now. Jesus, his resurrection secures the happiness that we can be justified in God's sight. Remember that justification is, is the pardon of sin on the grounds of righteousness. And earlier, we noted that Jesus' resurrection heralds God's justice and Jesus' um, resurrection. We, we read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Perhaps you're, you're still there and you see it. It tells us that Jesus' righteousness was vindicated. That he was declared to be just in his resurrection. And since Jesus Christ's righteous life was vindicated, since he's been declared to be just and justified by his resurrection from the dead, so we can be justified as we embrace him in faith, as we unite ourselves to him and believe in him. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Those were our sins. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Not the trespasses of others, but the trespasses of his people. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And he was raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection was a justification, a public declaration that he, in fact, lived a righteous life. And because he has been justified, so are we who are united to him in faith. God's declaration over him is his declaration over us as we are found in his son, in union with him. Christ, he's been raised. We are forgiven of our sins. Had Christ not been raised, then we would have been still dead in our sins and under God's just wrath, as 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says. But he's, he has been raised. And so if we trust in Jesus, we too have this security of justification through him and in him because of our union with him. The resurrection of Jesus secures the happy news that God's people are justified and forgiven of all of their sins. Christian, there's, there's not a sin that you have to pay for. Jesus paid it all. And so all to him you owe. Your whole hope is found in him. Have you believed on Jesus and trusted in him for your right standing before God? Because you won't have it on your own. It has to be all in him. So today, receive the eternal life he offers, the security that he has accomplished. And, and I wonder if you, you've also realized this too. The resurrection of Jesus secures that eternal life. Think about it, because the vine is alive. Remember Jesus, he called himself the vine and that we are his branches, right? We're united to him. If the vine is alive, then so are the branches that are grafted into him. It's only because the vine is alive that we are alive. And because he lives and reigns in indestructible eternal life now in glory, that life, that eternal life is secure. You will certainly have it because he lives and reigns in glory. His heavenly session occurs now. Think about this. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ secures Jesus interceding for you in glory. If he did not get up from the dead, he doesn't get up to the throne in heaven. And he doesn't plead for his people there. But his resurrection from the dead secures his heavenly intercession on your behalf. Jesus is pleading for you and for your sake. He is alive and he's, he's risen that's what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 tells us. And, and Paul, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, how he connects Jesus' resurrection to his intercession for us. Paul writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is pleading for us now, and it's His privilege and pleasure to do that. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead has been poured out. You realize too, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead and hadn't ascended to the throne, He would not have poured out the Spirit or had the authority to pour out the Spirit. And so He he wouldn't have sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He wouldn't have sent the Spirit on the day of your conversion. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, He he not only accomplished redemption, but He can now apply redemption to you. All of its benefits. Because He's been raised from the dead. And, And yes, that same Spirit who raised Jesus works sanctification in us. You know, we are struggling day by day with sins, aren't we? But the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, in that power, He he imparts life to us and strengthens us to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. It's by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, that He sent the Spirit into our hearts to help us live. We obviously don't live perfectly or perfectly righteous in this life. We're depending upon God for forgiveness and grace day by day. But we have the Spirit, and so increasingly, by God's grace, we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness, all because Jesus has been raised. A chain of events has been set off, and it's in part due to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And yes, it is true that we may die, but we know also that we will rise again, because happily, Jesus' resurrection secures our resurrection on the last day. I want you to turn to one final place in your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want us to take a look at especially verses um, 12 to 23, but really zeroing in on 20 to 23. That's on page 961 of the Bibles provided. If you were to, to scan through these verses, one of the things that you would notice is that Paul, he works back and forth between Jesus' resurrection and his people's resurrection. He he says that if Jesus has not been raised, then we won't be raised. He also says that if we will not be raised, then Jesus wasn't raised. Paul's point is that there is an indissoluble connection between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. You can see, particularly in verses 20 to 23, that Paul uses this metaphor of a harvest and first fruits. Take a look at those verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see what Paul is saying there? He's saying... There's a resurrection harvest, and that the harvest has begun. Paul's saying that there's an organic unity between the first fruits of the harvest, those fruits which first emerge in the harvest, and the rest of the harvest. Some of you grow crops, right? You, you plant a seed, and there's, there's one that springs up first. That's the first fruits, the evidence. And it's a promise that more crop is coming. And Paul is saying there's, there's a unity. That's one harvest, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the believer's bodily resurrection are not two events, but two episodes of the same event, of that same harvest. They're not two harvests, but one harvest. And the harvest has already begun. 
And so your resurrection, Christian, is secured. Christ's bodily resurrection is not simply a sign, but it's the actual beginning of the harvest. The resurrection of believers has actually begun with Christ's resurrection. So, so Christian, the, the first installment of your promised inheritance of a resurrected body that can never be affected by disease, decay, or death again has already been paid in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Because Jesus has conquered the grave, so you will too, Paul says, at his return. So what? What does it mean for you? It means that you can live with courage and hope. That we can boldly proclaim Christ with joy. Death has been defeated. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And we will too. The resurrection of Jesus prompted and spurred the first Christians to go on and to share the good news. Even in, face, in places of danger. And it should spur us on too. It should encourage us to share the good news of Jesus as well. It should give us boldness to turn up week after week, bearing witness to the watching world around us that we have come to serve the risen Savior and that though we may die, yet shall we live. In our worship, we show our faith that in fact, that though we may go down into our graves, we know that we will come up from them too. And He will come and we will come up from them with bodies like our Savior, imperishable, incorruptible, and immortal. In our resurrection, we will receive bodies like Christ, never subject to disease, decay, or death again. He paved the way for us. He has promised us that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We bear bodies like Adam, but on the last day we will bear bodies like Christ. This is why you need Jesus' resurrection. You need Jesus' resurrection. We all do. We all need Jesus' resurrection. And when you confess in the words of the creed that on the third day He rose again from the dead, you confess that your life has meaning. Because when you confess in the words of the creed that on the third day He rose again from the dead, you're confessing that what happened in Jesus' resurrection was the work of the, and the power of the triune God, whereby Jesus left the tomb body and soul and was raised physically from the dead and given a glorified body. When, when you confess in the words of the creed that on the third day he rose again from the dead, you are confessing that what is heralded in that event is God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises in scripture. God's justice in punishing your sin and vindicating Christ in his righteousness. God's declaration that Jesus is his powerful son, so powerful that he can defeat death. God's vindication of Jesus' words, I am the resurrection of the life, and that He's trustworthy in those words. And God's revelation that the new creation has dawned. When you confess in the words of the creed that on the third day He rose again from the dead, you are confessing the happiness of your justification, the growth in sanctification that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is working in you, and your hope of glorification that you will have a glorified body like Jesus. You need Jesus' resurrection. You have. If you have Jesus' resurrection, you have a life that is meaningful and life that is not hopeless. You have life in Jesus Christ who's risen and reigning. You need Jesus' resurrection. Do you have Jesus' resurrection? Have you confessed Jesus' resurrection as a fact of history, as the heartbeat of your faith, and the hope of your future, the certain hope of your future, you absolutely should. 
For on the third day, He rose again from the dead. Praise God for that. Let's pray together.